You are now listening to Brews with Biologists. Welcome to Brews with Biologists. I'm your host to toast, Marla Steele, and I'm here today with Zachary Ormsby. Zachary is a raptor ecologist out of Reno, Nevada, with a passion for raptors, conservation, and snowboarding. Zach, welcome. Can I offer you a coffee? Marla, that sounds great. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, I don't know if you've tasted this type of coffee before, but we're actually drinking something from Desert Wind Coffee Roasters. It's a local coffee shop out of Las Vegas, Nevada. They brew in small batches, it's roasted every day, and they serve it within hours of roasting. And it's coffee that they buy from fair trade organizations all over the world. It's amazing. Uh, what do you think so far of it? I think it's great coffee. Mm. Tell you, I would be in serious trouble if I did not have access to coffee on a daily basis, especially out in the field. Those 5.30 in the morning surveys are a little bit rough. They are, and this tastes a lot better than the coffee that I generally drink out of my thermos that's been sitting on the dash for the last six or eight hours. (laughs) Have there ever been times when you just forgot your cup of coffee? Yeah, of course. So I turn around, go home, and get my cup of coffee I Fair can't enough. do without it. <laughs> the, the birds can wait for the coffee. I, I understand. So you're a career uh, raptor ecologist. Uh, how long have you been doing this? I started doing field work in 2003. So we're approaching 17 years now. 17 years. Wow. That's quite a career. Uh, when did you first gain interest in raptors or biology in general? Did you play with bugs or... It's always fascinating listening to these stories. Well, that's I grew up in Las Vegas before it had a million people. I had wide open access to the desert and I spent an inordinate amount of time outdoors. I didn't watch TV as a child. My second grade teacher called my parents in for a conference because there was something wrong with their son. Uh oh. Um, (laughs) and, and, And what was wrong with me is I spent the majority of my time in the back of the classroom, looking out the window, watching birds in the trees. (laughs) And the teacher couldn't distract me from that. So what sort of birds did you see out the window? Just your general passerines, goldfinch mainly, um, Mm -hmm. in the pine trees outside of the school. And what that created for me, right, as a youngster, was that there was something wrong with watching birds. Um, That what was going on, on the chalkboard or what the teacher was saying was more important than being in tune with the natural world. And then in 2003, I started community college in San Diego and I learned that that wasn't the case that you could make a career and earn a living out of watching birds. And that's really where I got my interest in biology. I see. And I mean, obviously raptor ecology is a little bit more specific than just birds in general. How did you decide to narrow it down? That was easy. There was no narrowing down process for me. My first biology class in community college, the professor asked for volunteers to go out and help carry some equipment in the backcountry. Having just moved from Vegas to San Diego, I was interested in, in doing some hikes and getting to know the area a little bit better. And I met up with the professor. I was the only student that took him up on his offer to volunteer. And we did some hiking in the back country. And later that day, I found myself repelling into a golden eagle nest to retrieve some chicks so we could apply um, federal ID bands. And that, that was all she wrote. 
right? That was amazing to me um, that these people were earning a living doing this. And that's really that, that experience with those golden eagles set the trajectory of my career. Now, when you were saying that you were retrieving these birds to uh, look at their federal ID bands, what's that for exactly? Well, I've I've joked that the real reason that that we apply federal ID bands is so we can document the demise Mm. of golden eagles and other birds that receive um, federal ID bands because that banding data is collected when the bands are initially put on. And then generally the next time data is collected from those federal ID bands is when there's a mortality and the bands get reported to the Federal Bird Banding Laboratory. So really all that's known from those federal ID bands is where and when and what condition the birds were, where their nests were, um, or how they were trapped, right? So you get this, this initial data on the discovery or the capture of these birds, and then the, the the subsequent data is on their mortality. So that's that's really what we learn is is a little bit of where they came from and where they ended up and how they died. So how do we benefit from getting this information? How is it used? Especially, you're working in ecology. Your passion is conservation. How is the demise of eagles used towards saving them? Well, interestingly enough, the majority of golden eagle deaths are anthropogenically influenced mortalities. Anthropogenically right? meaning? Human cost. Human cost, I see. Human cost. So some of the larger known threats um, to golden eagle populations are um, collisions with vehicles, aircrafts, um, utility poles, power lines, um, cause electrocution, lead ammunition, and lead in the environment causes lead poisoning for the birds, and uh, wind turbine strikes are another influence on on golden eagle mortalities. And and so, like I said earlier, the majority of golden eagle mortalities are human-induced. So it helps us isolate what's causing these mortalities so that we can work towards reducing them in the future. That's hopefully the goal um, and and the big variable in that, right, is human beings. Mm -hmm. The Earth has this fantastic, and the Earth creature have this, they, they have this fantastic ability to take care of themselves. Um, so really what I think the job of conservation biologists or how I take my job is to um, influence human behavior in a way that's more sustainable. Interesting. So it sounds like you've done and learned a lot in the past 17 years. Uh, I'm curious. So you started out with just hauling field equipment into the field and getting a chance to rappel into an eagle nest. Uh, would you consider that your first big break? Yeah, um, directly and indirectly, that was my first big break. That professor worked on a golden eagle project in San Diego County that I ended up volunteering for continually um, for over six years. And the nonprofit that ran that project also did um, biological consulting for other projects, counties, and municipalities within Southern California which is also where my first paid field biology jobs came from. And so it, it was my introduction into the world of raptor ecology and mm-hmm. the relationships that were made there also led to my first paid gigs in field biology. <laughs> I imagine that felt pretty good to actually get paid to do something that you enjoy. Like it just, 
it's fun. You get to go outside and play with birds, right? I, I've often joked that uh, for a long time I got paid to camp. <laughs> Living the dream for a lot of us. It, it was, for sure. So what are you working on now? Uh, so now I work for the state of Nevada, and I'm a program manager for 28 conservation districts located throughout the state. Wow. And what does your work comprise of exactly? What are you impacting? You are working on conservation. What would your duties be? Like, what are you responsible for? Right. That's been the transition in my mindset in, in the years of working with biology. I, mainly, I work with people currently to really? produce conservation outcomes. And we have a variety of things that are impacting the state from invasive weeds, threats to desert tortoise populations, sage grouse, um, degradation of riparian habitats, mm -hmm. um, reductions in bird populations as a result of urbanization. So I've been fortunate in my last couple of years working with state to work on projects that, that produce conservation outcomes by enlisting uh, and enrolling concerned stakeholders to work collaboratively um, and apply science. Have you seen some results so far? Uh, so far, so good. We've we've started seeing some results in a couple of different areas. Uh, I worked on uh, some projects with the Bi-State Greater Sage Grouse um, where we have reduced cattle numbers in certain areas and created rotational grazing strategies to reduce the pressures on sensitive riparian habitat that's increased um, forbs, right, grasses and wildflowers mm -hmm. that benefit brooding sage grouse in the, in the hot summer months as they come down out of the hills. We uh, have created, co-created a pollinator garden with a graduate student from UNR. We're currently um, increasing pollinator habitat on Nevada's newest state park, the Walker River State Recreation Area, and that four acres of pollinator habitat within our first year uh, in the area that it was created. We had zero bees last year and mm -hmm. had uh, upwards of 20 different species of bees using and, and nesting in and around that pollinator garden. It's attracted monarch butterflies, which is one of the focal species we were looking to attract. And we're extending that pollinator garden through um, hedgerows to create migratory corridors and travel corridors for mm -hmm. these pollinator species to the East Fork of the Walker River. And within that same geographic location, we've planted over 600 trees in fallow or non-used, highly degraded um, agricultural fields that, that have gone out of service. That's incredible. And so you're providing resources that, like you mentioned monarch butterflies, those are serious long-distance migrants, correct? Yeah, big, big long-distance migrants. And current numbers speculate that population reduction over the last several years is upwards of 80 or 90 percent. So they're really in peril and it's uh, comes down to a loss of habitat, basically. And they, they like... Um, they like milkweed, right? That's 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 what they used as, as their substrate for egg production. And it's fairly easy for people to create monarch butterfly habitat. Right? They like pretty flowers, essentially. And so it, it advocates or, or is a justification for using native plants in your landscaping around your house 
And one of the things that we've done out at that pollinator garden is used it as a demonstration garden and doing xeriscaping um, or water-wise habitat creation and gardening practices and principles to educate the public on how easy it is to do this stuff uh, within your own residence. Doesn't matter how much acreage you do or don't have, but that it's fairly simple to use endemic or native plants in, in your landscaping. So every little bit helps. Every little bit helps. That's a nerdy saying, right? Teamwork makes dreams work. <laughs> Correct. Uh, so what happens if we don't have our pollinators? We don't have food. We don't have food. Ultimately is what that comes down to. Nevada's owned over 500 different species of bees. A lot of them are solitary bees. They, they nest in the ground, right? Or they reproduce in the ground in small holes. They excavate. And bee numbers uh, have been steadily declining, whether it's it's the bumblebee, the honeybee, or our local bees. And a lot of it has to do with pesticide, herbicide increases and habitat decreases. So ultimately, one of our first steps towards long-term conservation is working with people. It's the only way that it happens, mm-hmm. right? And so it... it, it And it comes down to teaching and educating and finding shared interests with people. I I think that's one of the areas where science um, or academia really doesn't give biologists the tools necessary to produce these conservation outcomes. And a lot of us get into science. um, We want to get paid to go camping because (laughs) we make a difference. Yeah, (laughs) and, and, and we like the isolation, right? We like being out in the middle of nowhere and enjoying our free time. Um, and and enjoying time to connect and commune with nature. And and, and that results in reduced people skills. And, you know, (laughs) it's a joke around a lot of biologists, right? We work Mm -hmm. with the animals and nature because we don't work well with people. And unfortunately, the environment that we study suffers for that. And, And so it's been important for me to evolve that that mindset and to develop the tools and skills that are necessary to be able to participate with the human population and to discover shared interests and find ways of working with people to, to do what's right by the environment. So building bridges overall, that's fantastic. Uh, I'm going to change gears a little bit. So just to give, say, the general public, people who are not biologists, who are looking at this world from the outside, more of a little bit inside of what it is like to be a biologist. Uh, I'm curious, as biologists, we come across some pretty interesting things in the field. What's one of the, say, most interesting or craziest things that's happened to you? (laughs) Um, One of the funnier experiences for me was circa 2012. I was working on a large-scale solar project uh, down in the Mojave Sonoran Transition Zone doing um, environmental assessment work, right? I would spend basically a year pre-construction to document species that migrated um, or were residents in this particular area. And so I I liked to make myself quite comfortable out in the middle of the desert. And so if you can imagine, I had a lounge chair set up out in the middle of the desert. I had an umbrella. Mm -hmm. I set up some misters. I imagine the sun's pretty intense out Um, there. Pretty pretty (laughs) intense. Um, and, and there's a lot of bugs when you attract the water. So I, I had some essential oils in my misters that not only smell good, but repelled the <laughs> bugs. 
and I had brought a cooler out there so I could have cold beverages. And mm-hmm. as I'm sitting there with my binoculars and my ice cold Coke and sitting in my lounge chair with these misters, I thought a figment of my imagination or an illusion, but this scantily clad <laughs> woman comes walking out of the distance um, up along this drainage ditch. And what she encountered was a shirtless man in mm-hmm. shorts with these misters, this, mm-hmm. this whole scene going on. And, and she was wearing equal the amount of clothes that I wore. Neither one of us were fit to be in public, <laughs> but thought that we were alone out in the middle of nowhere. And oh, So what do you a biologist do? <laughs> well, so I introduced myself as the resident bird man, mm-hmm. and she introduced herself as Batwoman. Really? And she was she was checking um, these machines called Anabats, which um, <laughs> document the acoustics of bats in particular areas. And so she was she was checking on on the bat population essentially. And it was a fairly embarrassing moment for the both of us, right? Half naked <laughs> out in the middle of the desert, running into somebody else. We didn't use our real names. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of had a Burning Man type vibe to it. Um, and, and then when I went back to my hotel later on that night, I saw the same gal introduced myself formally and found out that she was actually my project supervisor. No kidding. Um, for that project. And I'm assuming you were both wearing clothes at this time. At, at this time, we were both wearing clothes. Correct. <laughs> that's one way to make a first impression, I guess. It, 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 it was. And that's been a longstanding, almost a decade long joke between the two of us <laughs> and the other folks that were aware of it. And. When, you know, initially you're telling that story to other biologists that are on the project and it, it, it just didn't seem like a truthful story to them <laughs> um, until they were introduced to our project manager who was telling the same story. Uh, <laughs> yep, that's an interesting story. So we definitely have unique things that happen out in the field. Uh, I mean, obviously, if you've been pursuing this career for over 17 years, there's got to be some all-time high moments like what can you describe one of those moments that just years from now just still makes you smile what's one of the best parts really every time i get a handle a raptor trap an eagle um, go into red tail hawk nest or swainson's hawk nest and and ban the nestlings it it's a high it it really is um and it's an opportunity to keep working with species to keep working towards conservation and there are just a few things that I found that are more exhilarating than handling raptors. And that's my first experience that I talked about in 2003. I had this grin on my face that you couldn't wipe off. It went from ear to ear. And 17 years later, if you look at pictures of me doing it now, that same grin's on my face. For our listeners, what's it like holding a bird like that? I mean, you look at this picture of, say, a Swainson's hawk, and it just looks fierce and it has those really sharp curved talons designed for taking down prey is it ever intimidating you're actually talking about the bird i probably find most intimidating right? <laughs> which is the swainson's hawk and it, it, which they nest in cottonwood trees and pinion and juniper trees and and it is the only raptor when i climb the tree to ban them where i wear a helmet um the, really? the parents are fierce they are not happy with um, p- 
people entering their nest. They're very protective of their nestlings. Understandably. And, and, and so it, it is a race to get in and out of there um, doing as little cause uh, or causing as little stress as possible for those birds. Where it, a much larger bird, such as the golden eagle, flees their nest when you go in to ban their nestlings. And they'll go hit a couple thousand feet in altitude or go perch a couple of miles away and they don't expend the energy to protect their nest. Um, and, and, and so there's a sharp contrast, right? You get to learn these different behaviors of, of these raptors and how they respond to threats. Mm. And red-tailed hawks can be fierce. They can take a golden eagle approach and just flee the area and come back once you're gone mm. and not mess with you. And, and I have found that the red tails, um, each nest that I go into, it seems like the parents have a different personality than the previous nest. So it's been an exciting experience to feel like you're part of the community. Maybe sometimes it's a disturbance to the community, <laughs> but to get this insider um, information on, on how these birds respond and participate within their home turf. It sounds like a breathless experience. Uh, just out of curiosity for our general listeners, um, you were talking about reducing impact on these birds when you're going in and out of the nest. Uh, how do you make sure that you're not causing any negative effects? Is this safe for the birds? Well, you know, I think there's a little bit of bias. You, you, you're causing stress. That's the reality of the situation, right? You're an intruder that's entering their nesting territory. So there's something in, in bird behavior and really behavioral ecology called perceived and realized threats. Mm-hmm. And the some things are perceived as a threat and some things are realized as a threat. It's totally understudied. So some of these birds to me and the way that they respond is they perceive me as a threat. Some of these birds, based on my interpretations, realize I'm a threat. I don't think I'm a threat, mm-hmm. right? So I'm, I'm there trying to collect data to ensure the survivorship of these particular territories. You know, it's unfortunate to lose a bird under any circumstances. It's more important not to lose a territory because that affects reproductive success population-wide when we start losing these territories. Mm-hmm. So there, there, there is some hardship that's caused, um, I think, by my presence. I, I'm aware of that, and I do my very best to mitigate that and not spend, um, or I spend as little time as possible in those areas and try and restri- restrict my presence. Mm-hmm. And, and hopefully um, restrict any hardships or lessen any hardships that my presence may cause. I see. So ultimately, the parents do come back, though. Parents come back. Okay. So it sounds like, especially if you're dealing with these aggressive birds of prey that are trying to defend their nests, there's it seems like there's some risk. Or it, I'm imagining that biology as a whole is not always flowers and daisies and butterflies and happy moments. Can you kind of go into what's the harder side of field biology? What would be some challenges that you face? Variety of challenges come up. Um, Rattlesnakes, based on where I work, right? They've always been a risk. I've conducted safety tailgate meetings 
Mm -hmm. um, in the middle of the desert with groups of biologists and had an instance where a Mojave green rattlesnake came right through the middle of our group while talking about rattlesnakes just to seemingly let us know that it really, it really was there. I've had a supervisor on another project, um, my supervisor call and ask me what to do um, after a rattlesnake coiled up underneath his chair while his butt was about 12 inches off of the ground. Oh my. And, you know, so, so the outdoors has these inherent dangers um, on a project in 2014. It was one of the neatest places I've ever got to work uh, was outside of Visalia, California, hmm. adjacent to Sequoia Kings Canyon National Park. And I was conducting Golden Eagle surveys out there and had to hike every day. I had to hike a mountain between roughly about 1400 feet in elevation on a 40 degree slope. Oh, wow. So it's, it's not an easy hike, but I mean, it's kind of what I got in the business to do. And, um, in May of 2014, I was making that hike up to my observation point, document Eagles for the day. I came around a rock outcropping and encountered a wild boar. That boar charged me and, uh, in, in trying to get out of its way, I ended up losing a couple hundred feet in elevation in a way that I term uh, it was a bad ski accident with no skis or no snow. <laughs> um, lost consciousness, uh, came to, and subsequently um, had to go through a couple of different back surgeries and almost four years of physical therapy wow. uh, to recover from, from, from that incident. So it, it, it's Beautiful as it sounds, working in nature all the time, you're exposed to risks that, I guess, a normal population segment just isn't exposed to on a regular basis. I see. Yeah, it sounds like a harrowing experience. Overall, obviously, anybody pursuing a career, we give and we take. In terms of sacrifices, would you say there was anything that you had to sacrifice for the opportunity to experience birds of prey up close, going outside, seeing sides of the world that some people may never experience. Yeah, I think there's a variety of sacrifices that come with that. And part of it's isolation, right? And that's that's one of the one of the benefits, right? One of the pros, uh, but it's also one of the cons of the job. And you know, spending a year living in remote areas and, and doing surveys on the wildlife population also means that it's a year away from your community, your family, your friends, if you have a significant other. And, and so the, the sacrifices personally, I, I think can weigh heavy on relationships and it's something to be in tune with and to make sure that you keep connected with the people who supported you because none of us got here alone. Um, it, it takes, it takes family support. It takes support from friends and family and significant others. And so it, it, the potential exists for those same people to feel neglected once you start getting these paid jobs, uh, because you're, you're gone, you're away from home more often. It can impact, uh, if you have children, your relationships with your children. And so I think it's, it's important to be mindful of how you got there. Um, and, and a lot of it's relationship based, right? Whether it's your professional network or, right. or your familial network and, and that you respect those networks and you nurture them. 
Yeah. At the core of things, we are still social creatures. We thrive on those personal relationships. I imagine that's a very hard transition if you're out in the field for months or years at a time. Would you say that's one of the greatest challenges of biologists right now? I think it is one of the greatest challenges of biologists, right? It's like any skill that you have. Uh, it all takes work. It, it, it takes effort. It, it takes continual learning and participating. Mm -hmm. And that isolation can keep you from, from honing those relationship skills, which can affect your personal relationships, your family relationships, but it can also mm -hmm. affect those professional relationships. And one of the things that I, I mentioned earlier in talking about producing conservation outcomes and engaging stakeholders is it also has the potential to not let you develop the skills, um, the interpersonal skills that are necessary to work with these diverse groups of people, your neighbors, other stakeholders, other agencies, nonprofits, the general public. And so scientists are stuck in this dilemma of, of needing these interpersonal skills to produce the, these conservation movements and then find themselves isolated mm -hmm. doing the field work that's necessary. And so I, I think it's important to find a balance where you maintain your connectivity to people and you keep developing your, your personal skills um, while developing your professional skills. I see. So... As far as like the current status quo of biology, we have these biologists going out in the field and as far as just overall in the discipline or the career of biology, we have different tracks. We have nonprofits, we have governments, we have professional environmental consulting um, for development. What do you think needs to change in the field of biology for the future? It's such a large question. Um, but I think climate change gives us a pretty good example, right? When we right. look at when we look at climate change, there's been good science. We're um, making a lot of developments. Uh, technology alone has changed drastically over the past decades. We have satellites. Yeah, ab absolutely right. And more and more information is coming in. The results are clearer and clearer every year. Yet in this country, we're not doing a whole lot to mitigate it. How and, so? Well, that's, th there's a variety of reasons why we're not doing a lot to mitigate it. People are still arguing whether it exists or not. We have politicians that are re refusing <laughs> to admit its existence despite 97 or 98 uh, percent of, of the world's biologists um, attesting that it, it, it's present. And, and it, it comes down to these not understanding the climate changes. You, that's a part of the process, right? So, you know, the terminology climate change, there's some of us that see it as an emergency, right? There's other people that deny its existence. Changing maybe that mental framework and, and saying it, we're participating in a changing climate, right? Because it, it, it is. Mm -hmm. That's just what the climate does. That's what it's always done. Whether it's, you believe that it's being caused by um, humans, or anthropogenically influenced, if you believe that it's being accelerated by uh, human behaviors, whatever it is, the, the climate is changing. And so how are we going to adapt to it? And I think largely where, where science needs to change 
is we've come up with questions or hypotheses, and then we test these things. We collect data, and, and, and then we produce these results, the mm -hmm. results of our data, and generally leave it there with the expectation that somebody else is going to pick up that information and do something with it. Somebody else is going to apply it. And I think that's where their science is, is really sold its responsibility short, right, to the general public. If we are the people that are entrusted in protecting the ecosystem, of protecting the planet, of protecting the resources, then scientists in the scientific community needs to do a better job um, doing that, not just documenting the problems, but producing the outcomes and the solutions that are necessary and that I think the general public expects us to be able to do, right? It's not, it's not worked well with climate change that scientists put the information out there and then leave it up to politicians to do something about it. Scientists need to do a better job about being part of that process. So you're saying, like, say, biologists, for instance, we need to take that next step. We've gone out into the field. We've collected this data. We've drawn up these hypotheses and tested them and looked at these results and interpreted them. It's now our responsibility to reach out to people not classically trained in this field and be able to effectively communicate these results and why they're important to the everyday life. You're absolutely right. If we don't do it, who's going to? Fair point. So with that in mind, what would you, if you had to give a, a young biologist just coming straight out of school any advice, what would you tell them? Hopefully I, I get to participate with them or have this conversation while they're still in school. Mm. Um, I've, I volunteer a lot and I participate with community groups uh, to be able to provide internships mentorship opportunities, mentees um, for young aspiring biologists. And the, the advice that I would give anybody is that social science is a real science. Um, classes in psychology can help you out. Classes in anthropology can help you out. Communicating science is becoming a popular thing. And it's much needed. The historic naturalists People like John Muir um, or Dawson or Grinnell or, or any of these classic naturalists, right, were also fluid in the arts, whether it was poetry, it was drawing, um, painting. The Renaissance right? men and women. Yeah, yeah, they were they were illustrators. They could paint the picture. Not only could they tell the story, but they could paint the picture. And so I think science has also had a disconnect from from art. And at the root of every scientific question is this thing called creativity, mm -hmm. right? You, you have to be creative to come up with these questions. So I also encourage um, younger students and biologists not to go strictly into science, but to find ways to use the other side of their brain, right? And to participate in art, to participate in different forms of communication, because that's, I think, the skills that are most needed by the Earth um, and the Earth systems at this point um, in time is that scientists have the ability to communicate with the larger overall audience or the general public. And I think art's a fantastic medium to be able to do that. Yeah, interesting. That brings to mind uh, when I was taking a bunch of courses in my undergraduate, we would take 
like animal physiology or herpetology, the study of reptiles, uh, ornithology. We would be looking at all these skeletons and these specimens. And my teacher would just sit us down and say, just stare at it, draw what you see. And they always emphasize the point of, if you can draw it, you know it intimately on a level that just staring at it isn't going to communicate. And you're, you're right. It seems like that balances out. You're using both sides of your brain. And like from a personal perspective, it brings to back that feeling of when I was three years old and just out running through the grass and looking at these piles of dirt and wondering what made that and what's, what's going on there? Like what happened? Is this a mole? Is it an anthill? What's underneath that soil? What's just the ability to ask questions. And that you're right. It's that creativity and that love of exploring. So I think that has to be nurtured, right? That's, you know, they talk about scientists. I forget the exact numbers, but it seemed like once you've been a scientist for 10 years, the chances fall off the table that you're going to make a scientific discovery mm-hmm. and it's due to conditioning and, and, and conditioning by the marketplace or conditioning by academia. Um, but ultimately what it comes down to is a lack of creativity. And so I, I think it's most important that creativity be nurtured. I see. So future biologists should nurture that creativity and look into the arts and the literature and not just focus on the science. If they want to become a well-rounded biologist, that's exactly what I think they should do. I see. And speaking of the future, um, not just focusing on future generations, but what do you hope to do for the future? What's your goals? My ultimate professional goals are to affect policy and legislation in a way that promotes sustainability at local, regional, and hopefully national levels. I see. So as far as like a legacy, obviously we have a limited time on Earth. What would you like to see happen? What would you like to achieve during your lifetime? A paradigm shift. A paradigm shift. Can you expand on that? Yeah, I can. You know, if we keep looking at things through the same lens, we'll keep seeing the same things. Um, And we can't solve problems with the same mindset that we use to create them. You know, these are old adages. Um, That's one thing I notice is a lot of times if you propose a new technique, at times you'll receive pushback, especially from... um, older generation saying we've done this for uh, we've done this particular method for decades and it's worked in our opinion so why should we change well everything changes right that remaining static is at least in the environment you think a stagnant water um, becomes infected things need to continually progress and move forward it's just it's the manner of the earth's systems and you know darwin is famous for saying it's survival of the fittest, but I challenge anybody to count how many times that's said in the species of origin. <laughs> what, what Darwin should be famous for saying is the most successful species are those which are adept with change, right? And, and so we, we need to keep changing. And the paradigm shift that I'm speaking of is, is I think, that we're at a time in history where economic sustainability and environmental sustainability can become synonymous concepts. And 
not competing forces. And that's what, that's what I hope. And, and I can't do that on my own. I take a we approach to mm-hmm. everything, but that's largely where my efforts are focused on in, in my career at this point is how can we come together um, incorporating and understanding that human beings are an integral component of earth systems and the earth needs to be sustainable for us and we need to be sustainable for it and collectively um, with a shift in the way that we approach things I think it's an achievable goal. Teamwork makes the dream work. That's it. (laughs) So for our listeners if they want to learn more about um, these conservation methods the sustainability your work on pollinators raptor ecology uh, where can they find this information? (laughs) That's that's where my age um, creates a problem. I don't have a website. <laughs> I really don't participate in social media. Um, you can contact me through the professional network LinkedIn at Zachary Ormsby, Z-A-C-H-A-R-Y-O-R-M-S-B-Y. I have a manuscript about uh, in urban ecosystems on urban red-tailed hawks that primary author was Justin White. I have an upcoming book that I'm authoring a chapter on uh, regarding Golden Eagle uh, global status. And I'm working on getting a manuscript published now on my thesis work, which is titled Urban Avoidance by Golden Eagles in the Great Basin, where we looked and put GPS transmitters on a dozen golden eagles to see how they responded to urbanization. And so uh, that, that manuscript will be coming forth in hopefully 2020. Wonderful. And if our listeners want to look for these manuscripts, where would they go? Google. Google? Yeah, that's in uh, uh, some of these, which is part of how science is and where we get that terminology of the ivory tower is mm-hmm. a, a lot of these manuscripts are publications that require membership um, fees and dues to be able to access these publications. Generally, you can go to a college library and they can provide you access Mm -hmm. with these things. Um, Google Scholar is Mm -hmm. a great place to find access to these journals. Um, And hopefully moving forward, more of this scientific literature will be open source material. And I I would like to see a shift in the scientific community that this data break out of the ivory tower and become widely accessible to the general overall public. So if a person doesn't have access to these resources through college, what if they've been out of college for maybe decades? How much would it cost them to get a membership? Well, the memberships range greatly, but it generally start around 50 bucks a a year and work their way up. If you find an article that I've been a co-author on, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn and request a copy of it. I'll be more than happy to provide it to you for free. So maybe an alternative right now would be reaching out to the scientists themselves and requesting information. I absolutely agree with you. And and I don't know very, I don't think I know any scientist that would refuse to provide a copy of their manuscript to somebody who wanted to read it. <laughs> Wonderful. All right, guys. Well, again, thank you so much, Zachary, for being here. We're going to go get another cup of coffee. Again, for more info, Be sure to check out Zachary on LinkedIn or email him directly and try and get a hold of his manuscripts, which sounds like he's got some really interesting work going on. Otherwise, be sure to look up things like raptor ecology on Google and Google Scholar specifically. Thanks again. This is Marla Steele, your host to toast with Bruise a Biologist.
Brews with Biologists is a production of Eris Odysseys, a nonprofit dedicated to the conservation and research of aerial migrant species, as well as a proud supporter of career biologists. If you'd like to support this podcast, Eris Odysseys, and the guests, you can donate on our website at erisodysseys.org donate. If you specify the episode number, 50% of the proceeds will support that guest in their projects and endeavors. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.